The readings from Matthew 13, 1 to 3a and 44 to 58. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the, into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour, except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Thanks, Chris and Andy. Uh, okay, over to you, sir. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Let me pray for us quickly. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For our joy and for your glory, in and through Jesus our King. Amen. Well, did you notice uh, towards the end of the passage that was read for us how people responded to Jesus, to the things he said? He had finished telling his disciples the set of parables and had gone on to Nazareth was teaching there, and Matthew reports uh, towards the end of the chapter, they took offense at him. Well, Matthew, uh, who wrote this eyewitness account of Jesus' life and ministry, means through these parables to confront us. These are not quaint stories. One writer says uh, they are meant to provoke the crisis of the kingdom. And I think he's exactly right. A, a crisis is a, a, an upheaval, a, a shaking of your world, a, an emergency that demands your response. Now, the great crisis of these parables is just this. The kingdom has come. The reign of the king has begun. Are you a citizen of his kingdom or of the kingdom of this world? Are you a rebel to his rule? Or are you a subject of King Jesus? 
And if so, what does your king want of you now? And these parables will answer all those questions. Now, Matthew wrote this account mainly for a first century Jewish audience. And to them, the kingdom of God meant something very real and very tangible. It wasn't just an abstract idea. It was what they'd longed for for more than a thousand years. But for us now, more than 2,000 years later, and in a culture that couldn't really be more different, the idea of the kingdom of God is quite abstract. We need to get into Matthew's head a bit, find out what is all this kingdom stuff about, and then these parables will make sense, and we'll hear them the way Jesus and Matthew intend us to. So this is the way we're going to do it. We're going to take this in three steps. First, we'll take a, a wide lens view. Uh, of the kingdom of God. Second, we'll zoom in on these kingdom parables in Matthew 13 and let them confront us the way they're meant to and point us to grace in the way they're meant to. And finally, ask, how should we respond? So first, what is all this kingdom stuff about? What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is the kingly rule of God. It's his reign. Now, of course, there's a sense in which God always has and always will reign. He is, after all, God. He is the great king over all the earth, one of the Psalms says. His kingdom rules over all, says another. His reign as the great king is forever. Psalm 145, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. There is a sense in which God always has and is now and always will reign sovereign over all. He is El Olam, the everlasting God. He is El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. But the world doesn't look like it's under the reign of a good God right now, does it? Well, at least not absolutely, not uncontested. Uh, we only need look around us for five minutes to see the world in rebellion against God rejecting his ways, defying his authority. Five minutes on the internet is enough to prove that the world, at least most of it, is in rebellion against God, is not yet truly under his good rule. So there's also a sense in which his reign, his kingdom, is still to come. And all the Jews for centuries had been waiting for it. For a time when God's great Messiah would come and conquer all enemies to his reign and establish his kingdom on earth. Kingdom of perfect peace, justice and righteousness. Kingdom of joy untainted by human wickedness. The great reign of God's great Messiah. Their prophets told of its coming. Daniel, for example, was given a vision by the Holy Spirit. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. But for century upon century upon century, the Jews had waited for the coming Messiah and his kingdom reign. And what was the very first thing Jesus said in his public ministry? 
Well, Matthew tells us in chapter 4 and verse 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. How so? Because the king of heaven has come. King Jesus has come to conquer every enemy. And that he did decisively. Though not in a way that's obvious to all the world. Not yet. And that not yet matters. Because we live in that not yet. We live in the not yet. Between his first coming and his final coming. Between the achievement of his victory and the absolute enforcement of it. You see, he is establishing his kingdom now, his reign, first in the hearts of his people, and then exercising his reign over his people by gathering them together into communities that live as citizens of his kingdom and not of this world. And soon he will come again to complete his reign by establishing a new heaven, the new earth. And that is, for millions and millions of people, the worst news ever. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus said. Repent. Repent, not rejoice. Why? Because the king has already come once. And that means that the next event on the calendar of heaven is the final establishment of his kingdom. And to any rebel to his rule, that is the worst news ever. I said that five minutes on the internet will prove to you that the world is in rebellion against the great king of heaven. But five minutes honest reflection on the state of your own heart will prove you likewise guilty. Repent, Jesus said. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For those who will not repent and receive the forgiveness of sins offered through Christ's blood, for those who remain rebels to his rule, the news of the reign of the king is the worst news ever. Here's a description from 2 Thessalonians of what's going to happen when King Jesus comes again. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. The Apostle John describes what will happen on that day. In the book of Revelation, he says, all the people of the earth, the rich, the poor, the great and the little will call on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The worst news ever. And the best news ever. And here in Matthew 13, Jesus tells his disciples a series of parables, six of them. We call them the kingdom parables. And each one starts 
the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. These parables make clear why the news of the kingdom is both really bad news and really good news. They tell us how we know which side of the news we're on. Is the coming of the king for you the worst news ever or the best news ever? In a moment, John's going to put a slide up on the screen for us. And uh, this will help us zoom in from the wide angle lens of the kingdom to the narrow lens of the parables and especially to the parables of the, the hidden treasure and the, the pearl of great value. So, um, John, if you could help us with that. Thank you. I'll ask you to take it down again in a couple of minutes. The first thing you'll notice is that Jesus tells these parables in pairs. And each pair essentially makes one big point. The first pair of parables are the first and the last. The parables of the wheat and the weeds and the parable of the dragnet. And they frame the whole set. And with these parables, Jesus very plainly says, the great judgment is coming. The great separation when he returns to usher in his final kingdom. To put an end to all defiance of his rule. The angels will gather the weeds and the bad fish, all the wicked, that is all those who reject his rule. And, and please hear carefully the words he chooses. The angels will throw them into the blazing furnace where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thanks, John. If you, if you could take that down for us, um, that would be great. Thanks. And then in a few minutes, I'll ask you to put it up again. Um, a few years ago, before we moved here, I was uh, in London on a business trip and uh, over a meal I was talking with a handful of folks. And I, I don't remember exactly how, but somehow the conversation steered towards Christianity. I said, I'm a Christian. And one of the folks said to me something along the lines of, um, but you don't really believe that, do you? Not really. Uh, you're an intelligent man, he said to me. You don't really believe all that stuff. <laughs> uh, I do, I said, I do. And he began to list various things that were impossible in his mind to really believe. You really believe in Adam and Eve? Yes, I do. You really believe in Noah and the ark? Yes, I do. Virgin birth? Yes. Angels, yes. You believe Jesus actually rose from the dead? Yes. And uh, to all of these, he and others at the table just looked at me strangely, not really saying anything, until his final question. You really believe in hell? Like literally, an actual place with real demons and fire and all that? Yes, I do. And at that, uh, all of them at the table erupted. Ha! Don't be ridiculous. That's disgusting. How can you say you believe that? Rubbish. No ways. Nonsense. Friends, I hope you see from these parables that that reality, the imminence of final judgment, is the whole framework of Jesus' teaching in these parables. 
that his father will be glorified in both the just punishment of the wicked in the blazing furnace and in the salvation by grace the reward of those who will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father and within that framework he says uh, john if you, if you wouldn't mind putting the slide back up for a moment within that framework uh, thank you i see it there within that framework of judgment and reward the second pair of parables the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast he says to his disciples don't be discouraged your labors for the glory of my father and of your father may look small and unimpressive with mixed results you can't always even tell at least not at the beginning if what you're seeing is wheat or weeds growing from your labors keep sowing keep sowing it is in the very nature of the gospel seed that you sow that it must grow and it will because it has kingdom life in it it is in the very nature of yeast to work its way into the whole batch of dough and to flavor and affect the whole and it will because it has kingdom life in it don't be discouraged don't judge based on what the results look like to you right now wait and see in the end you will see but all of that leaves still unanswered the most important question how do you know if the coming of the kingdom if the reign of the king is for you the worst news ever or the best news ever and that's what the final pair of parables answers for us very simply is discovering the kingship of jesus for your life your greatest joy and treasure is the infinite worth of the king and of citizenship in his kingdom your greatest treasure and joy uh, thanks john you can take that down now and we won't need it uh, again thank you now as i said earlier these six kingdom parables come in pairs with and with each pair jesus makes one big point number one the kingdom is at hand judgment and reward are coming two the presence of the kingdom here and now might look really unimpressive but don't judge before the time and three how do you know if all of this is for you the worst or the best news ever well very simply is the infinite worth of the king and of citizenship in his kingdom your greatest joy and treasure it's really simple and i don't want to overcomplicate it i do though want to draw your heart towards two things in this final pair of parables that i think jesus means us to notice and that i think are really beautiful and i hope will encourage you and the first has to do with joy and the second has to do with grace first joy verse 44 the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field well you remember um 
from the book of Acts that one night a jailkeeper in Philippi asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? Surely it's one of the most important questions a person can ask. And the Bible answers it in many different ways. Paul said to the jailkeeper that night, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So that's one answer from the Bible. Elsewhere in Acts, the answer is repent. At the beginning of John's gospel, he says that all who receive Christ become children of God. The writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So we've got a bunch of different answers to that question. Believe, repent, receive, obey. And Jesus himself added more answers. One time he said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So following Jesus in a life of cross-carrying self-denial is another answer. So believe, repent, receive, obey, follow Jesus. These are all answers from the Bible to the question, what must I do to be saved? And we could add more from elsewhere in scripture. But I think this simple little parable holds them all together. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he sells all that he has and buys the field. Joy. Joy in the discovery of Christ and of his reign. Is Jesus your treasure? Is his reign over you your greatest joy? At bottom, what else can it mean to be saved than to delight in him? Is Jesus worth it all? Is he worth everything? The man sold everything to gain Jesus and be part of his kingdom. Gave up his home, his furniture, his car, his iPad, his jewelry, his pension, everything. He said goodbye to it all in an instant. And he did it in joy. It was no loss. It was no sacrifice. Because gaining Jesus was more than everything else. Do you love Jesus like that? Second thing in these parables, grace. What's the essential difference between the two parables in this pair? Well, in the first one, the man is just walking along in a field and he almost stumbles over this life-changing treasure. He wasn't looking for it. He wasn't on a treasure hunt. He had no expectation of finding treasure. Without any effort on his part, suddenly he has this treasure worth more than everything else in his life put together. In the second parable, the merchant is searching for fine pearls. It's his job. He's a professional. It's his livelihood. He's a searcher. And he finds a random discovery on the one hand and the reward of a painstaking search on the other and everything in between. Some of you discovered the great treasure of the king and the kingdom when you weren't even looking for it. 
in his grace, God put the greatest treasure of the universe in your way and you fell over it <laughs> into joy that you weren't even looking for. How gracious is our God. And some of you were searching, searching for joy, for meaning, for truth, for peace of heart, for a clean conscience, searching, seeking for what would satisfy your soul. And then you found the pearl greater than any other, a relationship with God through Christ. But either way, stumbling or searching, it was all of grace. A little earlier in chapter 13, we hear Jesus say to the disciples, uh, this is in verse 11, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to others it has not. To you it has been given to know. Whether you stumbled clumsily into the greatest treasure in the universe, or you searched long, either way it was God who by grace gave you eyes to see what you saw. Remember, the kingdom looks unimpressive in this age of the world. For you to see treasure beyond counting, in the person of Jesus and in his sacrifice of himself to atone for your sin so that you will not be among those who on that day cry out to the rocks and the mountains to hide them when he returns in conquering might. For you to see the infinite glory of his reign in the hidden and veiled workings of his kingdom now, it has by grace been given to you. And now finally, after these six kingdom parables, Matthew records a, a conversation between Jesus and his disciples that to me is the most beautiful moment of the whole encounter. In, um, in verse 51 of chapter 13, Jesus asks the disciples, do you understand all these things? Yes, they answered. And here's the moment that so takes hold of my heart. Jesus receives their yes. You see, it's clear that they don't fully get it. Not yet. Just a short while later in chapter 15, Jesus has to say to them, do you still not understand? Are you still so dull? And in chapter uh, 26, they were indignant at a woman who poured expensive perfume over Jesus. They fell asleep as Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, even though he asked them several times to pray with him. And when the guards seized him to lead him to the chief priests, and the night that led to the cross, Matthew tells us, all the disciples left him and fled. And Jesus knew all of that would happen. He even prophesied that they would all leave him and that Peter would deny him. But here, knowing their weakness, Jesus receives their yes. Doesn't correct them. And not just that, he commissions them as ambassadors of his kingdom. That's what's going on in verse 52. 
Jesus is saying that they have received by grace and by revelation the knowledge of who he is and of his kingdom reign. They have been given the knowledge that he is the fulfillment of all that had been promised in the Old Testament. And it was now their job to share that treasure with others. In other words, to make disciples. As he had said to them once before, freely you received the knowledge of the kingdom. Now freely give. Well, what about you, friend? Or are you like me? Do you declare your love for Jesus and your commitment to his kingdom one day and the next find yourself ashamed of something you've said or thought or done? Is he your greatest treasure one minute, the object of all your joy, such that you feel that if all the stars of the universe were given to you, you wouldn't even notice them next to the, the brightness of him? And half an hour later, you're bowing at the altar of money or power or sex or your reputation or whatever. Is your devotion fickle? Do your affections rise and fall? Do you wish your love was as deep as the sea and as strong as the mountains? But it's not. <laughs> Jesus receives your yes, your true-hearted yes. Even though it is an oft-failing yes, you see, a true yes doesn't have to be a perfect yes. One day, our yeses will be perfect. Our hearts will be made perfectly holy. And our joys and our affections and our devotion perfectly true. But that will happen only because he died on the cross to purchase your and my forgiveness for the fickleness of our joy and the incompleteness of all our yeses until then. So if your yes is true, weak, wavering, <laughs> fickle though it may be, Jesus receives it. And he calls you to tell others who he is and of his already here and still coming kingdom. Won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Our Father in heaven, how great is your grace that you open the eyes of our hearts to see who Jesus is the great King of heaven, the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity. Yet veiled he came as a servant, as a nobody in the eyes of the world. But in grace you have opened our eyes to see the beauty of who he is, beautiful Savior, beautiful Savior. And the beauty of the kingdom that is to come and is now already growing in veiled hidden ways, but nevertheless truly growing. How gracious, Father, that you accept our rising and falling devotion 
our broken yeses, our fickle commitment. Yet you see that our yeses are true because you have done this in our hearts by your Holy Spirit at work in us. It is all of you. It is all of you. Our salvation from start to finish, from eternity past to kingdom come is all of you. Nevertheless, Father, may it be true that as the days pass, our yes becomes deeper, our commitment stronger, our affections more constant, until that great day when we will see him face to face and our yes will be perfected. Thank you, Father. Amen.